This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 23, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. When a corporation defends itself against an attack in the press, insisting that their products are good, that the attack is mistaken, is that commercial speech deserving of First Amendment protection? What about billboards and magazine ads and online videos? At the Cato Institute's conference on the First Amendment, Martin Reddish of Northwestern Law School discussed the ways in which commercial speech has been at times diminished as speech worth protecting. The subject of commercial speech is uh, a very personal one for me because it's had a lot to do with my career. Uh, The very first article I ever published was my senior thesis at law school, and it was entitled The First Amendment in the Marketplace, Commercial Speech and the Values of Free Expression. At the time, this was 1970, no one, literally no one, had ever suggested that commercial advertising was deserving of First Amendment protection. Uh, The Supreme Court in 1942 had spent three paragraphs just shunting it aside as preposterous. And I decided to write my my thesis on uh, making the argument that as a matter of First Amendment theory, commercial advertising was deserving of significant First Amendment protection. This was not a popular position at Harvard Law School. Uh, People keyed my car, uh, they pushed me into the lockers, and that was just the professors. Um, uh, I published the piece in 1971 in the George Washington Law Review, and it was received with some interest, some hostility, and then everything died down. Uh, until a few years later when the Supreme Court decided commercial advertising deserved First Amendment protection. And over the years, that protection has grown, so now the whole field is is a cottage industry. And a couple of years ago, people decided, where did all this start? And people began to trace it back to my 1971 article. They... They didn't mean it as a compliment. It it was like saying he invented the Etzel or he managed Hillary Clinton's campaign or, or, um, but it was an observation of fact. They said that it all started with with my article. In fact, the Washington Legal Foundation just called me the, the godfather of commercial speech. And one of my colleagues said, I think if they gave you a paternity test, they'd find your DNA uh, in it. So you're not just the... uh, the Godfather. So let's let's talk about what my theory was and how it's played out. I began by focusing on the leading First Amendment theorist who was against protecting commercial speech, who thought only political speech should be protected. That was Alexander Mickeljohn, who wrote from the late 1940s into the mid-1960s, uh, the only free speech scholar ever to have his picture on the cover of Time magazine because he was a strong opponent of of, uh, Senator McCarthy. Mickeljohn's theory was that the First Amendment springs from the principles of self-government, that free speech facilitates, fosters democratic self-government because the people we call the governors really aren't the governors. They are the agents of the governors. We are the governors when we go into the voting booth. And because we are the governors, we need to have fully informed decisions about issues of government. So he focused the First Amendment right 
solely in the listener. He said the speaker has no First Amendment right. The First Amendment is not about um, the right of a person to speak. It's uh, about the need to have everything that's worthwhile being said. So the focus was on the listener. And he said because political speech was so important, speech related to this self-governing function, he excluded everything else and put it under the Fifth Amendment due process clause. And it occurred to me that, ironically, Micklejohn's theory actually could be turned around on him and uh, be established as a form of a justification for protection of commercial speech. If you look at the First Amendment right through the lens of the listener, we are private self-governors, just as we make collective self-government decisions out of the, growing out of the moral principles that underlie a commitment to democracy, so too do we control our own lives by making private choices. Imagine the following hypothetical society. Every decision, literally every decision, what we'll have for dinner, what television we'll buy, what car we'll buy, is made by collective vote. Everybody will raise their hand and the majority will determine what car is going to be purchased. Micklejohn would have had to say that any speech about the merits of that car was quote unquote political because it would help us perform our self-governing function in the collective sense. But now assume we've modified the society to make it look much like our own, where we have ceded to the individual certain private choices where the determining power and the consequences are not one one millionth of the whole, but 100%. The theory that commercial speech doesn't deserve protection would say all of a sudden, when we have 100% of the decision-making power and 100% of the consequences on ourselves, we no longer have the constitutionally protected interest in receiving information. It's completely irrational. So what I tried to do in my article was turn Micklejohn on his head and establish that the very same listener-centric perspective justified significant protection for fostering the values of private self-government. Five years after my article was published, the Supreme Court in the Virginia Board of Pharmacy case decided commercial speech deserved substantial First Amendment protection, a very controversial decision. And in it, the court emphasized that commercial speech receives a limited measure of protection commensurate with its reduced position in the values of the democratic process. So I considered this sort of a 50% victory because I thought the court was understating the importance of commercial speech. But the most troubling factor in giving reduced protection to commercial speech was how the court defined commercial speech. When I wrote my article, I had nothing to go on. Nobody had ever discussed this uh, before. So I just assumed commercial speech meant speech about the relative merits of commercial products and services. Uh, that's not how the Supreme Court defined it. The court defined it as speech that does no more than propose a commercial transaction. Think of what that means. We're not talking about all speech 
about the relative merits of commercial products and services. We're talking about speech that advocates it for purposes of a commercial transaction. So think of what that means. Ralph Nader criticizes the Chevrolet Corvair. Well, he's certainly not proposing a commercial transaction, so his speech gets full First Amendment protection. General Motors responds with a defense of the safety of the Chevrolet Corvair. All of a sudden, that's commercial speech. That receives reduced protection. So what we have is one side of a debate getting full First Amendment protection and the other side of a debate getting less protection. This is exactly what happened in a real case, uh, Nike versus Caskey, which the Supreme Court heard argument on and then uh, dismissed cert as improvidently granted, as they put it. Um, 60 Minutes in the New York Times had accused Nike of using sweatshops to make their, their shoes in foreign countries. And Nike took out a press release saying that they didn't do that and someone in California sued them for false advertising, and they received reduced protection because what they were saying was an advertisement, whereas the people uh, criticizing Nike received full First, uh, First Amendment protection. So basically what we're doing is distinguishing First Amendment protection based on the perspective of profit motivation or self-interest. But in no other area of First Amendment law does the self-interest of the speaker in any way reduce protection. When, when uh, welfare recipients picket for an increase in their benefits, that speech has, has, has an economic self-interest. When uh, officers of corporations or labor unions um, demand that NAFTA be repealed, that is for economic self-interest, and there's nothing wrong with that. The First Amendment is not the preserve of Mother Teresa. We can use the First Amendment to advance our interests, but when it comes to commercial advertising, when it comes to commercial speech, all of a sudden, the speaker motivation reduces the protection because the, the speaker is trying to gain a profit. What this ignores is Micklejohn's listener-centric perspective. Micklejohn himself ignored it, but uh, I, I urge us not to do so. If the important First Amendment dynamic is the benefit to the recipient of the speech, why do we care whether the speaker had an economic motivation? because we can't trust the quality of the speech because it's said by an advocate that never bothers us in the political process. Why do we all of a sudden be, get concerned about it here? What, what I suggested a few years ago, and this is to me this is not a left-right liberal conservative kind of thing. I'm, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Uh, when it comes to Constitutional theory, I hate everybody and the feelings mutual. Uh, uh, I suggested that basically the, the, the left-wing constitutional scholars who believe in strong speech uh, protection in the political process but reject it, most of them categorically, in the commercial process are basically exercising a kind of twilight zone viewpoint regulation. 
It is a hostility not to the particular advertisement being uh, stated, but to the underlying capitalistic perspective. Because there is other, no other rational way to distinguish the kind of self-promotional speech in the political process that they fully protect and this kind of speech. Or the fact that they would give full protection to consumer reports, which is speaking about nothing but commercial products and services, but re uh, reduce it for uh, uh, advocacy. The Supreme Court basically has come to the view that, with a few exceptions, commercial speech deserves virtually full First Amendment protection. The last time the government won a commercial speech suppression case in the Supreme Court was 1993. And there have been numerous losses since then. And this has, got, uh, has led me to adopt the, the label, the equivalency principle, to describe the level of value seen in both commercial and non-commercial speech. In 1996, in the 44 Liquor Mart case, Justice Stevens, writing for the plurality, adopts what I consider the core notion of commercial speech protection. He says, government may not selectively suppress truthful commercial speech advocating lawful behavior because government fears that people will make the wrong decision on the basis of that speech. And this is really the core notion of what it's all about. It's a question of the, uh, the liberal democratic social contract. It's the anti-paternalistic model that we use in other areas of free speech. The, the Bush administration could not have suppressed anti-Iraq war speech on the grounds that people might make the wrong decision on the basis of that speech. Similarly, the government shouldn't be allowed to suppress truthful, lawful commercial speech on the grounds that people might make the wrong decision. Either people are sheep or they're not. Either they're capable of making their own decisions or they aren't. And if we say they aren't, then we have basically discarded uh, the foundations of the democratic system. So the irony is, while commercial speech was purportedly excluded from the First Amendment scope because it really didn't deal with anything political, in reality, what turns on the decision to protect commercial speech is a commitment to core notions of democratic theory. Uh, the Supreme Court all but formally adopted my equivalency principle in a case called Sorrell versus IMS Health, where uh, the state of Vermont was drawing a, a, a discrimination between drug manufacturer speakers and academic researchers for no reason other than one was a drug manufacturer and the other was an academic speaker. And the court said this discrimination deserves strict scrutiny, which means it is virtually uh, unconstitutional. Uh, because it was a discrimination based on viewpoint. And the court was right. What it didn't fully acknowledge, however, was that the court's own commercial speech test, which gave less protection to speech for no reason other than that it was commercial, itself 
was discriminatory in the exact same way. So the court's own pre-existing commercial speech test violated the anti-discrimination principle adopted in Sorrell. <clears throat> the gap in the equivalency principle is false commercial speech. The Supreme Court has categorically excluded all commercial speech uh, with knowledge of falsity, with negligence, without negligence. If it's false, it's not protected. That's not the way the court approaches false non-commercial speech. Um, in, the, in the area of uh, defamation or harm to reputation, the Supreme Court has said it's only if uh, the falsity is with knowledge of falsity or reckless disregard of the truth or falsity that uh, the, the speech is unprotected. Well, what's the basis for the distinction? Three reasons have been given. One, the profit incentive for commercial speech will keep it hardy, will keep the, the speakers speaking and prevent a chill. Well, I don't find that particularly persuasive because a lot of non-commercial speech is for personal gain and personal self-interest. So if, if that speech isn't going, uh, is going to be chilled, why wouldn't the commercial speech still be chilled? In fact, companies often may draw economic decisions and will be very risk-averse not to say things that might give rise to problems. The second argument that's been used is verifiability. The truth or falsity of commercial claims are always verifiable, whereas claims in the political process are much more difficult to verify. Not totally true either way. Uh, a lot of commercial claims turn on scientific theories that may or may not be true and are not easily verifiable. And by the same token, a lot of political claims are simply statements of fact that are easily verifiable. Finally, the argument is that there's deadline pressure in the non-commercial press world that doesn't affect uh, advertisers. But much non-commercial speech has no deadline pressure. So the distinction is basically a false one. Does this mean that false commercial speech should be protected? Mostly no, but I think it's important to understand why. The reason false commercial speech should not be protected in most instances is not because commercial speech is of lesser value, but rather because by its nature, commercial speech causes, false commercial speech causes more significant uh, unprotected harm. I've seen five different kinds of, I've set up a, cat, a taxonomy of harms that can flow from false speech. Financial harm, you could be defrauded. Harm to your health or safety, harm to reputation, collective political harm, or interpersonal harm. The Supreme Court has declared the first two of these, and to some extent the third, to be of significant interest. False commercial speech knowingly false commercial speech, will always have a financial harm. You're proposing a purchase. 
And if the purchase is made under false pretenses, there'll be that financial harm. But this is true in the political process as well. When Stephen Glass or Jason Blair uh, wrote articles that were false in either the New York Times or the New Republic, no one claimed they had First Amendment protection to do that because they were selling newspapers or magazines under false pretenses. Similarly, health or safety, false commercial speech can often have a, have a significant harm on health or safety. Um, that's not true of most false political speech. Uh, the other categories the Supreme Court has said are not necessarily uh, causing significant harm. So the most political speech, if they cause any kind of harm, will be in those, those other categories. So the reason commercial, false commercial speech is not protected has nothing to do with its reduced value. So I think what we have to, to do is recognize what I call the danger of reverse dilution that if we start recognizing that uh, truthful, lawful commercial speech can be suppressed because we don't trust the citizenry to make a valid choice, we will have provided a, a conceptual and moral foundation for much more sweeping violations of the, the basic precepts of the liberal democratic social contract. Thank you very much. Martin Reddish is a professor at Northwestern Law School. He spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on the First Amendment earlier this month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.